Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. church family. I especially want to say a big round of thanks to our teachers who are helping to kick off Sunday Bible School. We started this week, so if you were not able to make it, you uh, didn't, didn't engage with us, encourage you to join us for Sunday Bible School next Sunday, 9.37 to 10.30, and uh, we've got classes for all ages, including our students uh, our kids, we've got three different adult classes, so lots of opportunities to learn and grow and connect. Encourage everybody to come and join us at 937 uh, for our Sunday Bible School. And with Sunday Bible School come a couple of other little changes to our schedule. Uh, we're going to have Children's Church once a month starting in the month of October during service. Otherwise, we're anticipating that our, our kids will be in the service with us once they're school age. And I know that's a little bit different than we have had for a while. So we're trying to provide some resources. Uh, I'm a nerd, so I provide nerdy resources. Um, so here's some cool stuff. Students, kids, I want you to see this. We got some great things for you. First of all, there's coloring pages. And I didn't get nasty cheap crayons. We've got colored pencils. This is, this is high life living, kids. Um, when I was a kid, we just had to use the blood and dirt from our fingers. Uh, to color pages, but we've got colored pencils for you guys. And parents, I want to tell you why this is so so cool uh, as a resource. Back there in the Faith Kids um, uh, activity station, every week you're going to find two more pages for what is called a catechism. And some of us, we grew up in, in church structures where catechism was something that we participated in, but it's a question and answer format that helps us to learn about our faith. And so the coloring page, two pages, already three-hole punched, your kids can color these, and then if you take them home and save them up over the course of the next year, you will have a full catechism for helping to work through your faith with your kids. So um, question number one, who is the first and chiefest being? Now you might go, that's kind of dated, and I'll go, yes, it is. It's an old catechism that an artist took and illustrated, but the questions are still relevant. So who is the first and chiefest being? Anybody got an answer? God. So we're going to start with God. Jesus is a good one. He's he's right up there since we've got a trinity. Uh, Same same God, right? But that's the, the answer. God is the first and chiefest being. And then some scripture references down at the bottom. So same is true for question number two. Ought everyone to believe there is a God? Well, of course, the the answer is yes. But the deeper answer is everyone ought to believe there is a God. And it is their great sin and folly who do not. And so it gives you an opportunity as a parent to look up some scriptures together with your kids to answer this catechism. So we've got the, 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 uh, the pages, the colored pencils, and... Because I know how hard it is to color on a soft seat, there are also, um, what are those things called? Clipboards. Thank you. you. Sorry. You know, sometimes I just forget what things are called. That's weird. So if you are not into coloring, but you're an older student and you'd like to take notes, 
We've got sermon notes pages, and some of you adults maybe could benefit from these if you wanted to. And it, it isn't like specific to each Sunday, but it is things for you to fill out and doodle. Things like who's speaking and date. So if you were wondering, today is Sunday, the 26th of September, and uh, the person who is speaking is Pastor Michael, or just Michael, or that dude with the weird beard and hair. Um, all that's good, fine descriptions. And then we're going to be talking about the book of Philippians today in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And lots of great questions. I learned what happened, my favorite song, I didn't understand. So questions for you to be able to write down to either ask your parents, or you can come up and ask me after the service. We've also got some other stuff in the works we're looking forward to in the next couple of weeks, getting some kids' messages started, so inviting the kids forward every Sunday. We've got some grab bag and prize-oriented processes we're looking to orient or get going, so parents know that we are wanting your children here in the service. We know it's not easy. We know it can be a challenge, and it's a change from what we've done previously, but we are going to do everything we can to provide you and your kids with the resources to engage and belong in the service. Now, just as a story, when I was in elementary school, my fondest remembrances of church services were falling asleep. Okay, so, so look, we're not expecting, like, sitting up straight, perfect attendance and notes from anyone. If you or your kids come to church and it's peaceful and the first thing you do is fall asleep, hallelujah, you're here and we love you, right? So don't think that there is this expectation for eyes to the front and perfection from your children especially, but instead we want them with us so they can see what it is to learn, to see what it is to worship, to see what it is to make church a part of their everyday life so that they can grow in discipleship and faithfulness. Another quick announcement, in addition to all our other regular Bible studies and, and meetings, 1829, we're meeting this coming Friday night. What? I'm excited about casserole. Oh. So it's, <laughs> I'm excited. I'm done. I can't even remember what clipboards are, and you're over there making noises like I did something wrong. Um, <laughs> So, so, so any of you could have said something and I would not have paused. I would have just kept talking right over you. When my wife says something, I'm like, what did I do wrong? Oh no, what's wrong on the slide? Um, so, <laughs> but she's excited about casserole. So 1829ers. Uh, so it's actually a trick. Your favorite casserole should not exist because casseroles are gross. But um, no, that's not true. Uh, just if it has tuna, it's not, it's not real food. Um, but... Anyway, bring your favorite casserole and dessert. If you're not in the 1829 group, uh, tough. But do look forward to other fellowship meals and stuff that we'll be having throughout the month of October and uh, beyond. So today, we have the privilege of beginning a brand new sermon series. So we are going to be looking at the book of Philippians. Today is a little bit of introduction, and you might be wondering, what are those squiggly lines? And... Um, that's a great question. I actually know what they are, and let me tell you. So in the book of Philippians, in fact, Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 21, the apostle Paul writes this. He says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
So he makes this statement, and it's actually amongst the focal statements or theme statements for this whole book of Philippians, which is actually a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church that he really loved. And he's telling them that when it comes to living out the Christian faith, when we are alive, it's for the sake of Christ. But when we die, we gain everything. And so he wants to encourage the Philippian church in this statement that for him and for themselves, as we live and live fully, it is to the glory of Christ. When we die and die physically, we actually live forever, and it is to our gain to pass away from this broken life and into the eternal one. So these letters, these squiggly letters, it's actually Greek. It's the the Greek language, and and some of you, if you've taken Greek, you might go, Michael, that's not perfect, and I'll agree with you. It's stylized. But the word is zane, and it means, it's an infinitive, it means to live, to live. And so when you see these squiggly lines for the next 20-some weeks, I want you to think to live for me, for you, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And over the, the, the next few weeks, we're going to be looking through the, this letter from, of, uh, from Paul to the Philippian church, and we're going to be understanding what it is from his perspective, from the, Christ's perspective, to genuinely live. So a little bit of background uh, is where we need to start as we get going. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, and you might say, well, Michael, we're doing a study in Philippians. Yes, but we need to know a little bit about this church and a little bit about these people and Paul's interaction with this city and a little bit about this city in order to better understand this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. So Acts chapter 16 is actually the beginning of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. He had gone on one previously with a friend whose name was Barnabas. Most of us who grew up in Sunday school and we, we, we remember those names together, Paul and Barnabas. And now, after some circumstances between Paul and Barnabas... They have split ways, and Paul is going on a different missionary trip, a second one, with a different group of men that include Silas and Timothy, and from time to time, Luke as well. And you might remember Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so here, the Apostle Paul and his group of cohorts, they are venturing out on their second missionary journey. And those of you who are familiar with geography know that they're down on the bottom right, that is Israel. And then up to the north is what is modern-day Turkey. And then to the left on on the the top there is what is modern-day Greece. So most of Paul's missionary work had been up to this point uh, in the area of uh, Turkey or Uh, Asia Minor. That's where they had done most of their work. And so he's going out again and he wants to continue his work in Asia Minor and then continue up north towards the Black Sea. But he has a, a change in itinerary 
that comes from the Holy Spirit. So Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 8, it says this. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to uh, Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they were here in uh, Asia Minor, in uh, the area of Turkey. They had been traveling around in these different areas. They wanted to continue up north and go up into Asia, but Paul has the Holy Spirit tell him that's not the plan. So uh, here's what happens instead. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So they end up on the very tip of Turkey on the way toward Europe and Greece. And then this happens in chapters 9 through 12. So that they're at the very point of the the arrow on the right here in Troas. And then in verses 9 through 12, this happens. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. So the Apostle Paul had plans to go up into Asia to begin to preach the gospel, but God said no by the Holy Spirit, and then in a dream, he has a man asking him, Please come over here to Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. Please come over here and help us. Now, the only help that the Apostle Paul has to share is the gospel. And so it is clear in Paul's vision that the, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't want them to go up into Asia, but instead that there are people in Greece that are hungry for the truth of the gospel. They need salvation through Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, and then in verse 12, um, excuse me, verse 10, when it switches over to we, we know that Luke was included in the group at that point as well. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke all head across the ocean and end up in Philippi, which is almost like at the very northern, well, it's the very northern city on this map. So they end up in Philippi. And so what happens while they're here? Well, the rest of chapter 16 gives us the story of the founding of the church at Philippi and all of the circumstances that surrounded it and so a taste of some of the culture of Philippi as well. So in verses 13 through 15, if you were to read them, you'd see that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they normally had a practice of going to the local synagogue and talking to the Jews first. But there was no synagogue in Philippi. It was a distinctly Roman city. And so when they started to share the gospel, they went out to a river beside the city and they started to preach to women who were gathered there for prayer. And the implication is that these were, were women who had gathered to pray to the one true God who potentially had some background in Judaism. And so they share the gospel there. 
And Lydia, who is a seller of purple, is converted. Now, you might wonder, why does a seller of purple matter? I mean, why would you describe someone like that? Well, because there was only one real special type of purple dye made from the shells of mollusks, and it was used specifically for the imperial household or for anyone else who was special and and had political significance. They could potentially use it as well. It was a color that implied royalty and authority. And Lydia was someone who produced the dye and the cloth that was for the consumption of the rich and powerful. So she was likely a fairly well-off woman. And she converts to Christianity. And, and actually begins to be, over time, the host of both the apostle Paul and his cohort as well as the Philippian church. So she persuaded them to stay with her, and they continue to share the gospel. Now, this is likely one of my favorite stories in Scripture next, uh, verses 16 through 19. Uh, Once, as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. So there is a demon-possessed young woman who is telling fortunes in order to earn money for those who possess her uh, or who own her. She is a slave. And in verse 17, as she followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the most high God. She did this for many days. Isn't this so cool? Here is a, I mean, not if you're the girl, but overall, the the picture of it, this demon-possessed girl is following Paul and his team and over and over again says, these guys follow the one true God. They're teaching you the truth. These guys follow the one true God. These guys are the real deal. The demon is freaking out about Paul and his company and is declaring, trying to get them in trouble. These, These guys... These guys, they're the servants of the Most High God. These guys are teaching you salvation. Thinking that they're going to get into trouble, when in reality she's revealing the truth. Isn't that so cool that that the demons can't help but declare Jesus? The demons even can't help but acknowledge the truth of the gospel when they come up upon it. Now, ultimately, after a time, Paul and his companions get a little peevish about this this circumstance. They, they get a little frustrated with it because she did it for many days. And it says, Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Now, there's so much we could, there's so many little bunny trails we could follow, right? He gets annoyed. He turns around and says to the demon, come out of her in Jesus name. It doesn't say that he had to hold her down and say it over and over again or splash her with this or wipe her with that or anoint her with this or come back again and again or watch her twitch and fall. And No, it says he told the demon to leave and it left. Not because of his authority, but in Jesus' name, the demon left. Now, I... I challenge you to turn on Christian television 
this week? And what will you see when they deal with demons, allegedly? A whole bunch of shaking, a whole bunch of screaming, maybe some barking or meowing, and a whole lot of, in Jesus' name, Jesus, 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 leave, 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 leave. I got to say, I don't think it's as genuine as they'd like us to believe it is. Because the real authority that we see that a believer has in Christ's name is to simply speak and the demons flee. Not because we're special, but because Jesus is powerful and genuine and he rules. So we see this slave girl, she's exorcised and here's the result in verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them in the market, into the marketplace to the authorities. So they say, the golden goose is dead. Let's get these guys arrested. So they drag Paul and Silas into what would have been the center of town, the marketplace, which was also the center of the government for the city of Philippi. And they had them judged and they were beaten and they end up in jail overnight in jail. They're in there. They're singing. I've been listening to um, a, a Petra song over and over again this week. Some of you guys remember Petra. Some of you are like, what? Uh, old Christian rock band. And just like, Paul and Silas were thrown in jail for preaching the gospel of Christ. So some of you remember that. Some of you are like, what's his problem? Um, I am not demon possessed. It's just, man, I've been listening to some good music this week. I encourage you, if you're old like me and you like that kind of stuff, try some Petra. If you like Kansas, you'll like Petra. All right, so um, Shelly doesn't like Kansas, I don't think. She always makes a face when dust in the wind comes on. That's another sweet song. But anyway, Paul and Silas are beaten and put in jail. Overnight, they're singing songs. As they're singing songs, there's an earthquake, and all of the prisoners are set free, except none of them leave. Now, the jailer, whose personal responsibility it was to take care of every prisoner and see to it that they were secure, was ready to kill himself because he knew that if any prisoner escaped, his life was forsaken. So he was like, well, everything's opened up. I bet somebody left. And he was willing to just go ahead and die on his own sword. Instead, the apostle Paul and Silas, they were like, hey, hey, wait, wait, we're all here. Everything's good. They save his life and then they share the gospel with him. That night, the jailer and his whole family believe on Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So cool. Now, what happened, though, is Paul was actually a Roman citizen. And so was Silas. And they had been beaten without a trial. And in fact, it was kind of on the outsides as to whether or not a Roman citizen could even be beaten like they had been beaten. And so when they make it known that they're Roman citizens, the leaders of the city are like, oh, wait, wait, we don't want to get in trouble. How about you guys just leave? We're sorry, leave. And that's exactly what happens. Paul and Silas actually head out. Timothy stays behind, and it looks like Luke probably left with them. And so we see this interaction in in Philippi that is just full of life where a a, a woman who is a, a wealthy entrepreneur trusts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We see a slave girl who has a demon cast out of her and her whole life changed because of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and the power of the gospel. We see a a jailer and his whole family 
brought to salvation. And then Paul and Silas end up leaving shortly thereafter. Now, what's unique about the city of Philippi, it was founded in 360 BC. So by the time Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke get to Philippi, this city is about 400 years old. So it has a long and rich history. It it sits right in the middle of a fertile plain, and so there's lots of farms and stuff around Philippi. It was actually, for those of you who are history nerds, it was the site of the battle between Brutus and Cassius when they were fighting against Antony and Octavius. And some of you are like, what? And I'm just like, if you remember... Julius Caesar stabbed in the back by Brutus and Cassius at Du Brute. And, and then Brutus and Cassius are in, in battle against Julius Caesar's adopted heir, Octavius, and Antony, one of his great generals. And these two sets of sides are fighting over control for the Roman Empire. And this is before Christ's time. It's um, uh, before B.C. came to an end. And uh, eventually Octavius wins uh, uh, over both Antony and Brutus and Cassius. And Philippi became a city where soldiers were retired to. Soldiers who had served faithfully in this war. And so they were granted Roman citizenship here in this city. It was a Roman colony. It had the same rights as if they lived in Italy itself. They were all Roman citizens. They paid no taxes to Rome. So it was a pretty sweet deal to live in Philippi. And the Philippian people would have identified not as Grecians, not as Macedonian people, but as Romans. Because they had the same authority as people who lived right outside of the city of Rome. They were, had that kind of citizenship authority. By the time Paul and his cohort get here, there are about 10,000 people in the city of Philippi. And it's situated right on what's called the Via Ignatia, uh, or the, the Ignatian Way, which was a major trade route in the day. It ran all the way across Greece and all the way over to what became Constantinople. And so Philippi is a pretty important city. And the church gets started in this miraculous way with this wealthy businesswoman, a jailer, and maybe even a slave whose demon had been cast out. And then this church begins to grow in the household of Lydia. And so by the time Paul is writing this letter, sometime in about 52 to 55 AD, he's under house arrest in Rome. He had been preaching the gospel. He had been out sharing. It came to a point where he is arrested by the Jewish people. And then he uh, appeals to Caesar because that was his right and privilege as a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen can appeal their legal circumstances and troubles straight to Caesar. It'd be like us anywhere we are. You know, here I am in the middle of nowhere. I get pulled over by a sheriff for speeding. I appeal to the president. And it would be their responsibility to get you to the president, and then the president would hear your case. Of course, that doesn't work that way, but that's how it was for a Roman citizen at the time of Paul. So Paul had been taken to Rome 
under charges of treason against the Roman Empire for his faith in Jesus Christ and his refusal to worship Caesar. And he is in captivity under house arrest in Rome, likely with a guard or two or three or four living with him. Uh, Tradition tells us that there was likely guards chained to him almost continually throughout the day, one on each side. And he is facing charges that could take his life. In other words, the crimes he is accused of are such that the punishment, were he found guilty, would be death. Not only is he under house arrest and he's got his, uh, his charges against him, but there are people in the church, specifically in Rome, who are questioning his authority. They, they think he's a bad leader. They think he's not doing things right. Like he's just a bad missionary. I mean, hard to believe that people in a church would do that, right? Uh, Have an opinion about somebody else's activities or job. But no, he's facing these charges of being a bad leader. And the cool thing, though, is he's been under house arrest probably for a couple years by now because these processes took time in his day and age. So he's been under house arrest for a couple years, and he is being supported by gifts from the churches that he helped start. And among them is Philippi. So he's just gotten a gift from the Philippian church brought to him by a man whose name was Epaphroditus. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad your mama didn't give you that name, right? Epaphroditus. Uh, We'd probably just call you Pat. Um, But Epaphroditus brought this gift and he was uh, now going to bring the letter back to the Philippian church from Paul. So these are the circumstances. Why is Paul writing it? Well, he's writing it to be a thank you note. He wants to thank the Philippian church for what they've done for him in bringing this gift. He wants to encourage them toward unity and standing firm because every church everywhere, all throughout the empire, was struggling with persecution. And the Philippian church was no exception to that. He wanted them to prepare for Timothy to come back and visit them. He was warning them against the heresy of the Judaizers, a group of Christians who said, you've got to believe things like Jews do and do Jewish things before you can be a Christian. And he also wrote to remind them of his own love for them and his view of their role in sharing the faith, how important they were to his job in sharing the gospel. So that brings us to chapter 1, verse 1 of Philippians. So, I encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. And we are going to begin this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Now, when we read the Bible, a lot of times we read it like a textbook. But it's important to understand that when this was written, it was not some sort of teaching textbook. It was an intimate letter from a leader to a church that he loved, trying to share these thoughts with them. So while we're going to take the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, apart bit by bit, I want to encourage you to interact with it as a whole and just see how it feels all together. Because it's meant to be a love letter to a local church. It's meant to be a love letter to local believers. And so while there is much we can gather from this academically, it's also important for us to gather from it 
the emotional impact it was always meant to have upon believers. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading from throughout the entirety of this uh, series, the Christian Standard Bible. Remember, not all of our translations read exactly the same, but they are translated from the same original languages. And um, so we all have faithful translations Unless you're using the message for your study Bible, then you need to get rid of that and pick a good one. Uh, But uh, like Christian Standard Bible, English Standard Version, King James Version, New King James Version, New American Standard, NIV, these are all great choices. So while our words, the translations might be a little different, it's all based on the same Greek originally. Remember like Zane, Greek? And so verses 1 and 2, while they will maybe read a little different in our translations will have the same impact as we come to understand them. So let's read together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is just the very beginning, clearly, of this letter. It is the salutation. It's the who wrote it, who is it to, and the beginning of why they are writing. So let's just take it apart a little bit at a time and understand some of the words in these two verses. Because while we read this, we can brush over it really quickly and just kind of go, all right, so we know who wrote it, we know who it's to, Hooray, let's get to the meat of this letter. But I want you to understand that even in the simple words that are chosen at the very beginning, there is meat in this book of Philippians, in this letter to this beloved church. So first of all, Paul and Timothy, they're writing together. It's likely that Paul did all the writing. He just includes Timothy to share his authority, especially since he is sending Timothy as a representative. We'll find out later in the letter. And so it's unlikely that Timothy actually had a pen to paper in this letter, but Paul includes him so that he's included under the umbrella of his own authority. And here's what Paul calls himself and Timothy. He says that they are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, servants, when we hear that word, a lot of us kind of get this mindset. We get a picture of somebody in like, a formal suit, you know, a bow tie and, you know, always with a British accent, right? Um, Somebody who is serving, you know, Alfred for Batman. You know, we've, we've got this idea of a servant. And the word servant, though, is much, much more powerful in the original language. Because a better translation, according to some scholars, is simply to say slaves, of Christ Jesus. Now, when we're talking about slaves, a lot of us, as soon as we hear the word slaves, it conjures up in our mind lots of negative connotation. And the truth is, is that when Paul uses this word in first century Roman life, it carries with it many of the same negative concepts. It really carries with it the idea of someone who is almost completely owned in their life by someone else. 
This is not someone who is working for a paycheck. This is someone whose life belongs to another. And that everything they do is for the benefit of that other. So when Paul uses the word servants, the better translation is likely slaves. And it means exactly what we think it means. Two people completely possessed, owned by God. Serving at his will, according to his whims, by his power and authority. Paul and Timothy saw themselves as slaves. Now, there is this this concept inherent in the word is in order to come into that slavery, they had potentially been servants who recognized the goodness of their master and then made a lifetime commitment to allow that good master to own their life. It's called a bond servant. So some of your translations might translate this word not just servants, but instead bond servants of Christ Jesus. But it carries with it that same view. Someone who comes to a master says, you're a really good master. You should own me. (laughs) You should be in control of my life. You are such a good master. I I can't imagine serving anyone else. I can't imagine working for anyone else. I sign my entire life over to you. I am your possession. And this is what Paul and Timothy see themselves as. The possessions of Jesus Christ. A lot of us, especially 21st century Americans, as soon as we hear ideas like that, we just kind of go, but what about my liberty? What about my freedom? What about my rights? You're absolutely correct. All of those, according to Paul, would be signed over to God. All of those things would be signed over to Christ Jesus as the one who is master of Paul and Timothy. So if that's what they expect for themselves... Might it be that we as believers should expect similar things in our life? That we would be servants to the point of slavery to Jesus Christ? That we would begin to abandon ourselves and our rights in order to follow him wholeheartedly? I think that's what scripture teaches us. Now it says that Paul and Timothy, these servants, these slaves, they are writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. So if you remember all the way back to the series we did on 1 Corinthians, who are the saints in the church? Everybody who believes. So if you could, we could get like little medals for all of us. We could hang around our necks and we could be saint whomever. Uh, Actually, we wouldn't do that because we don't pray to saints. We pray to Jesus straightforward. Uh, But here's the deal is we are all saints. If we made bobbleheads for all the saints, we'd make a bobblehead of everybody who's trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are all saints. So when Paul says, I'm writing to all the saints in Philippi, who's he writing to? All the believers. This applies. This whole letter is for every believer in Philippi. And by extension, we need to understand that everything in this letter is for every believer in every church. So all of this is for us, too. Because we are saints in Christ Jesus. Now that phrase, in Christ Jesus. Some of us take, we just, 
read over it real quick and say, yeah, you're a saint because you believe in Jesus. But you need to understand that this one phrase, in Christ Jesus, it means so much more than you believe on Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It is this, this picture of position. It is this picture of identity, this position of security, because you are in Christ Jesus. You have a new, a new place to inhabit because you're in Christ, a new way of life. You've been given a brand new identity because you are in Christ. A lot of times when we're describing ourselves, we would describe ourselves by the things that are external to us, the things that we see around us, right? So where are you from? And you'd all list your township, and then the person would ask next, so where is that? And, you know, eventually you get to, I'm from Pittsburgh, right? I mean, that, that's just, there's, there's no other way around that. So you, you describe yourself, I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. I work at, I have this many kids, or I don't have any kids, or I'm, I have a house here, or we just rent. Or There are so many ways that we describe ourselves. We, we find our identity. I am a Steelers fan. I am not a Steelers fan. I, Shelly. At least she likes an NFC team, right? She likes an NFC team. It's like she doesn't even exist. Um, <laughs> so anyway, now we, I've just distracted myself. Identity, right? We describe ourselves so many ways. How many of us describe ourselves in Christ Jesus? That would be the first way we would identify where we live who we are, what is important about us. Now, I, I got to admit, it's a challenge for me too, right? Meet somebody new, what's the first thing they ask? What do you do for a living? And you tell them, and, and that's your identity, right? Wouldn't it be cool if, what do you do for a living? I follow Jesus, right? But what do you do? I, I follow Jesus. I mean, I happen to work in gas and oil, or I work at PPG, or, or you know, I, I sell groceries, But, but, right, but I, I follow Jesus first and foremost. I am his. I walk with him. And even if you don't say it out loud at all your business interactions or every time you meet somebody, it should be first and foremost in our mind. I am in Christ. It's my position. It's my identity. It's my security to be in Christ. Now, this one makes me smile, this little bit. Paul says, I, I'm writing to all of the saints in Christ, in Philippi. Oh, right. And the pastors and the deacons, too. I mean, doesn't that, that should make you just like chuckle a little bit. Yeah, those guys account. The pastors and the deacons, yeah, I'll write to them, too. But really, I want everybody to hear me. Uh, what this shows me more than anything is there is no elitism in the church. There's no hierarchy there's no better than. Now, some of us are more mature than others. Some of us are growing further than others. But guess what? Just because I have a title and a position that God has sovereignly shifted me into doesn't mean I'm a better believer than you. What Paul says, this letter is for all the saints. And yes, that includes the pastors and the deacons too. What a beautiful picture 
of our equality in Christ. A beautiful picture of how each of us has the potential to be exactly what Paul is going to say of us in the coming passages. That there is no elite Christian that Paul is writing to. He's writing to every believer, including the pastors, the overseers, and the deacons. And here's what he says as he begins. Grace to you. Now, what is grace? Mercy, to get us started, is when we do not receive the punishment that we deserve. Grace is when we receive the good that we have in no way earned or deserved. And so, mercy is so critical to the story of the gospel. But once you have received mercy in Christ Jesus you begin to receive grace. And grace is that daily, unearned good that you get from God. Now some of us look and go, yeah, but you don't know how hard I work. I earned everything. Nah, you didn't. Because even the health, the physical well-being you have to get up and go do is God's grace. And Paul, in stating this, is saying he wants the Philippian church to understand that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Everything good in your life finds its source in Christ Jesus. So grace to you and peace to you. Peace, it's that that ability to cease from striving. You don't have to work to be good enough anymore. You don't have to try and make everybody happy. In fact, in Christ Jesus, in this new identity that you have, you first have peace with God in that he no longer condemns or judges you because when you've professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when he looks at you, he sees righteousness. He sees goodness. He sees the perfection of Christ, and you have peace with God. And that should give you the ability to have peace in life. If God is satisfied, as I grow in Christ, then everyone else is just kind of noise. That doesn't mean we're turds to everybody. But what it means is that the persecution doesn't matter. The the noise that says, well, you're not really that good of a Christian, doesn't matter. Instead, we're able to find peace. But Paul's so clear. Where does grace come from? Where does peace come from? God, our Father, our provider, our sustainer, the one who loves us and in whose very being we find our origins from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul makes clear from the very beginning of this letter that at the center of it we are going to continually find over and over again God the Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we struggle, as we strive, as we seek for answers, it's always going to be coming from, flowing from who we are in relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. So, as we wrap up this morning, as we get ready for our last worship song, I want to tell you, here's where we're going to be going. Here are the things we're going to see. And here's what Paul teaches us very clearly in these first two verses of Philippians. Here's the Christian life already summed up for us by Paul. You and I, we have been given new roles. We are supposed to be servants and saints. And in fact, not supposed to be, but we are. When we are in Christ Jesus, we are servants and we are saints. The question oftentimes is, will we live up in these new roles? Will we dive into them wholeheartedly? There are stories of actors and actresses who when they get a new new role, they get so involved in it, so in character, that they begin to behave like that character even when the cameras aren't rolling. Now, that's what our Christian life is supposed to be like. That we understand these new roles we've been given, slaves and saints, that even when the camera isn't rolling, even when we're not at church, we are so into these new roles that we are living them in every aspect of life. Understand that you have been given a new identity. You are no longer a Pittsburgher. You are no longer a Steelers fan. You no longer, what defines you is no longer your job or your family, but what you are, who you are, is in Christ. When you've trusted on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, your whole identity should flow from that relationship. You've been given a new status in life. You are provided for. You should be at peace with God. And you've been given a new source for all that you are and do. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we're going to journey through this letter to the book of Philippi together, we are going to slowly understand how these new roles, this new identity, this new status, and this new source of life for all of us is going to have an impact on every aspect of who we are and how we live and give us new perspectives on the Christian life. So, I encourage you to join with me in the coming weeks and memorize this one verse from Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because this is a summary of all of these concepts, all of these concepts of roles and identities and status and source. When we say that to live is Christ, we are saying that He is the focus, He is our definition, He is our master, He is the one who provides and who gives peace. Everything is for Him as we live. And guess what? When this life is done, we get eternity too. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And as we live and as we die, we get to see these new roles, this new identity, this new status from this brand new source of life coming to bear more and more in every aspect of who we are. I encourage you to stay faithful. Join us every week for this letter of Philippians. It's going to be a good study. It's going to be a good time in God's Word. I also want to encourage you, if you didn't attend Sunday Bible School this week, consider next Sunday. There is no like point at which you can't jump in. 
And guess what? If you can only come once a month, come once a month. If you can come twice a month, come twice a month. If you can come every Sunday, hallelujah. But just come, engage, belong. Start with small goals in your Christian walk and move into the big ones. Nobody needs to go be a missionary in Africa this week, but you could start by attending Sunday school once a month in the month of October and then twice in November and then three times in December and then four times in January. And by February, you're here the whole time. Come join us. And then stay faithful. Come join us every Sunday for this study in Philippians as we learn how to live in Christ. As the worship team comes up to wrap us up, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we get deeper into this letter to the Philippian church, that we would be able to see ourselves, to see our new roles, to see our new identity, to see just how you have have given us this new life sourced completely in you. And that as we see all of these things, we might learn what it is to truly live in you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that comes through it. Thank you for this beautiful church body you've given to us. We are better together. We are whole together. And I pray that you would continue to knit us closer together and help us to grow in discipleship and evangelism as we know you, Jesus, and make you known. In your precious name we pray this morning. Amen. Stand if you'd like, sit, lie flat on the floor, but let's worship together in this last song.
guys take a quick seat? We've got one last thing. Brother Steve, would you join us up at our Reverend Massey? Come on up here, would you please, brother? Brother Steve is leaving for India again uh, in uh, this week. So, yes, yeah, Friday. Yeah, my math. Yeah, Friday. So he's leaving for India again on Friday. Uh, COVID has really made it difficult for him to travel, to go and, and over to the church in India and participate. And, uh, but God opened the door and provided some special status for him through the Indian government that he is able now to kind of come and go as he pleases, uh, able to, to go over there without uh, worrying about visas and come back and uh, stay as long as he needs to. So we're really excited about this new era of ministry that his American citizenship did not necessarily allow him. But now that he has a dual status, he is able to do so much more. So uh, he leaves this Friday, and uh, or the first, and, and so it's important for us to send him off in prayer. And also, if you would remember that we've been raising funds for both property and building for the church there. So if you would still like to give to that, that's still possible. Uh, it's not completely paid for. And then we also, you're kicking off orphanage uh, for, for children at the, at the moment that are um, beginning to live at the church. There's a, a staff member who's been hired to help take care of those kids. Um, and with the hope that that, that kind of ministry can grow. With COVID, with persecution, there are children who need stable places to live uh, in India. And so this is an opportunity to start small and impact more lives as God makes provision. So know that that's on the, on the table and happening. So anything else you want to add that's coming up? Uh, you're going over, you'll be there for Christmas, working to purchase the church property will be the big priority of this trip. Any other big priorities? So there's still paperwork stuff to be accomplished with the government. So be in prayer for that as well. So property and paperwork, as well as the general ministry of the church and the orphanage. So uh, brother, would you come stand right here? I'm, I want you front and center, right? And, this is, and then anyone who would like... Would you come and uh, join in prayer up here? Uh, the, the, the book of Acts tells us that the, uh, the church in Antioch, they set apart Paul and Barnabas, and they laid hands on them and prayed over them as they sent them out to their mission field. So if you'd like to come up and pray over Brother Steve to lay hands on him uh, as an act of faith, understanding that it is not our hands that bring blessing, it is the power of God, but our hands serve as a touch of love and respect and honor and prayer that God would bless him richly. So would you pray on your own as you stand and then I will conclude our prayer time over Brother Steve here in just a moment. Father God, today we, your people, with more than two of us here gathered together, we bind, we declare, we set apart, Brother Steve, once again, asking for you to anoint him specifically for this ministry to his village. 
that you would give him favor, continued favor with local authorities, that you would give him favor with the authorities of the state, that you would give him favor with the national authorities. Father, we pray that paperwork would flow. We pray that that the church would be able to operate in the light and in good standing as much as is possible without bribes, without deceit, but instead standing up upon your truth. And we ask for that anointing to flow through our brother Steve. We ask for that, that favor to flow through him according to your power and good pleasure. We pray that you would grant him wisdom to be able to set the stage for what is to come in the ministry, to follow your prompting, that he would hear your voice, Lord Jesus, as you seek to build your church there. And so today, we lay hands on him and we ask him to be set apart for this ministry, fully equipped, filled to the brim, empowered beyond measure, granted favor with all men. In your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So don't forget to pray. He'll be there through uh, at least January at this point. And uh, pray daily. Add him to your list to, to, uh, that, that God would, uh, would have him in his hand and with special favor. So God bless you all. We'll see you throughout the week. I look forward to seeing as many of you as will at Sunday Bible School uh, next Sunday in the 1829. Bring your favorite casserole. Uh, and we'll see you guys throughout the week and next Sunday. God bless.